19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and was feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And beside all this, between us and you, a great custom has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not do so, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Here ends the New Testament reading. As we stand, let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we come to these words which you spoke here on earth, please use them to speak to us, to prepare us both to live for you and one day to meet you face to face. In your name we pray. Amen. Please do have a seat. Let me begin by uh, telling you about Stephanie. Stephanie was in a Christianity Explored group with me in my last church, and she came from a very religious background. She would have called herself a Christian. But in that Christianity Explored group, that's where she first properly heard the good news about Jesus. So she heard that we all, by nature, refuse God his rightful place in our lives uh, because we want to live them our own way. And she heard that only by turning to Jesus and accepting his forgiveness and accepting him as king can we put, be put right again with God. And when that penny dropped for Stephanie, I still remember the moment in that group when she said, so are you telling me that I am going to hell? And I looked at her, she looked at me, everyone else looked at the floor, uh, praying that it would swallow someone up. Um, and the Lord gave me the presence of mind to say, um, well, the teaching of Jesus, and I take him to be God, is that if you reject him to the end of your life, then yes, you will go to hell. And needless to say, that was the end of the discussion for that week. Everybody left. And I turned to my co-leader and I faithlessly said, well, we definitely won't see her again. And I wonder whether we'll see any of them again. Uh, 
In fact, we saw all of them again. And Stephanie was the one in that group who came to faith. And uh, we interviewed her about that a couple of years later in church. And she said, uh, as we interviewed her, I had a very religious background. I'd been told that if I was baptized and confirmed and uh, went to mass and lived a life which I thought was good, that I would be okay with God. And then I still remember, I can still hear her saying, all my life I had been lied to and I needed someone to tell me the truth. And her story is a warning of how anyone in this building can be self-deceived about where we stand with God. And this morning in our series in Luke's Gospel, Jesus gives exactly the same warning through another story, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. And Jesus told it to help every one of us do a reality check on where we stand with God, where we really stand with God this morning. So could you turn back in the Bibles to page 875, page 875. That will get you to Luke chapter 16 and just before the parable, because I want to remind us who Jesus was originally speaking to here. So page 875, and could you look down to verse 13, or little number 13 of Luke 16. Jesus has been teaching about how God wants us to use the money he gives us. And verse 13, he says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and anything, in fact, but here Jesus is on the subject of money. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and ridiculed him. So like Stephanie in that group, the Pharisees were very religious. They looked as if they were serving God, but Jesus knew that most Pharisees were actually pretty well off and gave every evidence of loving God, loving money, not God. So verse 15, he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men. In other words, you do all this religious stuff, including a little bit of giving, so that other people judge you as right with God. But God knows your hearts. In other words, the the, the one judge who really matters knows that you are not in the right with him. And he knows that simply by looking at your use of money, going no further than that. That's who Jesus was originally speaking to. So now let's hear him ourselves so that we can each do a reality check. So over the page to page 876. And let's look down to Luke chapter 16 and verse 19. So there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. So back then in those days, purple was the ultimate luxury garment because purple dye was hideously expensive. The equivalent today would be a coat made of, for example, vicunia wool, which I gather would set you back about £15,000. Then fine linen, that's what they use for underwear. So this guy would have probably bought his boxer shorts from the French label Hermes, just £400 a pair, if you're still looking for stocking fillers. (laughs) And Jesus also says he feasted sumptuously every day. 
the Financial Times a couple of weeks ago had a review of Peace and Loaf, the restaurant just down here, just down the coast road, and they raved especially about the tasting menu, which is just £115 a head, including drinks. And this guy ate like that every day. By contrast, verse 20, at his gate was laid a poor poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So the rich man has a gate because he has a wall, because he has an expensive pad full of expensive stuff, and he needs high security. And outside the high security is Lazarus. And he'd have been happy with, Jesus says, what fell from the rich man's table, which means what they chucked on the floor for the guard dogs. And we're not told whether any of that actually came Lazarus's way, only that the dogs did. And there's no hint yet, is there, of where the story is going, but you cannot but feel uncomfortable at the gross contrast between the haves and the have-nots. But that is the world we live in, isn't it? Where the most recent figures show that globally up to one and a half billion people live on less than a pound a day and nationally we're told that the rich are getting richer and the poor poorer. And if parables are like mirrors that the Lord Jesus holds up to us, then he's asking, do we see ourselves living complacently and uncaringly with the same gross contrast on our doorstep and worldwide? Let's read on, verse 22. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. In the Bible, Abraham is the spiritual forefather of all those who, like him, would genuinely put their trust in God, which Lazarus did, which is why he ends up in heaven. But read on. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Now Jesus did not not, not mean that as a literal description of hell. We are not to think that people in one of those places can literally see or communicate with those in another. We are not to think that the fire is literal. After all, Jesus also called hell outer darkness, which it cannot be if there is literal firelight. This is not literally what you would catch on video. This is imagery of a horrific reality. So anguish from this flame is an image of mental pain, just like outer darkness is an image of being shut out from God and from the light of his presence. But it is imagery of something real. Jesus taught that hell is real. No one spoke about it more than him. And he did so not because he took pleasure in talking about it, but because he wanted to warn us from going there. And that was the whole point of his coming. You have missed the point of Christmas and everything unless you realize that the point of his coming was to die on the cross so that we could be forgiven back into relationship with God while there is still time, before it is too late. 
So Lazarus dies and goes to heaven, not because he's poor, but because of his faith in God. The rich man dies and goes to hell, not because he's rich, but because of his attitude to God. And end of verse 23, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And if you'd not already read verse 24, what do you think he might have said? Do you think he might have apologized to Lazarus for how totally selfishly he'd lived? Do you think he might have confessed the wrongness of his life to God? This is what he actually does, verse 24. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. So in hell, he can't any longer tell himself that God isn't there or that his life is okay. In that sense, he sees differently. But there is no apology or confession. And it seems that at heart, he is just the same person he always was. Self-absorbed, self-centered, still thinking he can get people sent to do what he wants, just as his servants always did in this life. The Bible never says that people in hell come to their senses and see all things as they really are. Instead, various Bible passages point in exactly the opposite direction to the fact that their unrepentance continues on and on. So repentance is, is, is the Bible word for turning to God and saying, you are king, your will be done. Whereas unrepentance means staying turned away from God, saying, uh, I want to live my life my own way. Uh, I want to judge for myself what is right and wrong. My will be done. And however we are by the end of this life, repentant or unrepentant, that is how we will stay beyond this life. That's the teaching of the Bible. And in the rest of this parable, Jesus says three things about hell that he thinks we need to hear. The first is that hell is just. I take it that in verse 24, the rich man is looking to change his situation. But verse 25, Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, or at least good things by his definition of what was good. The pad, all the possessions. But the list didn't include justice. So he had his good things. And Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And that is the reversal that God's justice ultimately brings. You remember the contrast between these two men at the start of the parable. And we said earlier, we, we know that that is totally gross and unjust. And Jesus is saying we also need to know that, that God will ultimately bring justice when he wraps up our lives and finally wraps up human history. And the way Jesus put it was that God's kingdom is going to come. And he simply meant that God is, is going to bring to an end this present time when, when people can ignore him. And can have their own way and to some extent get away with it, even if it's gross. And he is fully and finally going to assert his kingdom, his rule, in a way that's inescapable. You, you can't oppose anymore. 
And if you're like Lazarus, that is very good news because that's what you've wanted ever since you first repented. Lazarus may never have, never have had anything in this life. But as someone saying to God, you be king, your will be done, he would have tried imperfectly to, to be a just person, to use what he had for God, even if all he could do was share a hunk of bread with another bre- beggar who crawled up. But if you are the rich man, the kingdom of God coming is dire news because you don't want God to be king. You haven't faced up to the fact that God really is there and this this perfect new creation is actually going to come about. And that if you won't let him change you radically to be part of it, then you won't be part of it. Time, uh, I said, that this is as unpleasant to say as it is to hear, especially being the only non-Christian member of my family. Some of you know that my dad died two years ago, and uh, he was a professing atheist. Now, none of us must pretend to know where things finally ended up between God and anyone else. We don't know. But I have no ground for comfort about him. I also want to say I agree entirely with the great Christian writer Charles Hodge who wrote, This doctrine is one which the natural heart revolts from and struggles against and to which it submits only under Jesus' authority. And I think if you're a Christian here, you will relate to that. But submit I do because Jesus taught that hell is real. And he taught that hell is just. Not only because it finally establishes God's justice over everything, but because it finally gives everyone what they wanted. So in his chapter on hell in The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis wrote this. I believe that the damned are in one sense successful rebels to the end. And that the doors of hell are locked on the inside. And that they enjoy forever the horrible freedom from God they have demanded and are therefore self-enslaved, just as the redeemed, forever submitting to obedience, become through eternity more and more free. So Jesus says hell is just. The second thing he says is hell is final. Look on to verse 26. And beside all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not do so and none may cross from there to us it's pretty obvious why people would want to cross from the rich man's side to abraham's less obvious why they might want to cross the other way presumably to try to change the plight of the people there but none of that is possible for the rich man and lazarus things are now to use jesus word fixed forever and how we respond to Jesus in this life whether or not we ask his forgiveness and accept him as our rightful king will fix where we stand with him in eternity that's what he says there are no second chances after death there is no purgatory hell is Final, says Jesus. The third and most important thing Jesus says is hell is avoidable and he wants us to avoid it. That is the whole point 
of his coming, of his death on the cross for our sins, of his resurrection. It was so we might avoid spending even one more day of this life on the wrong side of God, let alone eternity. And so in the parable, Jesus turns lastly to the issue of responding to him now. Look on to verse 27. And the rich man said, Then I beg you, Father Abraham, to send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. In other words, the Old Testament. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. He said to them, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone rises from the dead. So the rich man knows now that hell is real and that people need warning to avoid it. So he wants Lazarus to put in an appearance from the dead at his father's house because he thinks that'll convince him to repent. But Abraham says, no, they, they have the Bible, which at that stage was, was just the Old Testament part that pointed forward to Jesus. And the rich man says, that's no good. They need a miracle. They, they need something totally convincing right in front of their eyes. And Abraham says, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced should one rise from the dead. In other words, if they won't believe on the written evidence of everything that God has said and done so far through history to make himself known, they won't believe even if he does do something miraculous right in front of their eyes. If Lazarus rocks up at their house from the dead, they will not instantly repent. They will put it down to mass hallucination or a bad bottle of wine or too much cheese last night. And today Jesus would say, you now have the whole Bible, Old Testament and new. You have the record of my coming into the world that first Christmas time, of my life, of my claims to be God, of my miracles, of my death on the cross and of my resurrection. And if you will not believe on the written evidence of those who were there and saw me and heard me, you would not believe if I came back again in your time. And did it all in front of your eyes. You think you would. But you wouldn't. Just think of the number of people you read about in the Gospels. Who saw and heard it. And walked away unbelieving. People often say to me. You know I'd believe in God. If there was some decent evidence for him. And when I've said there is. It's the Bible. It's just instantly poo pooed. Just dismissed out of hand. I mean proper evidence. You know what is there apart from the Bible. And Jesus says. This is the evidence. This is all you need. This is all you're getting. And if someone says something like that, if they they won't look at it or they demand something more, it actually shows how very much they want to avoid God and avoid coming to any conclusion that would threaten their unrepentance. That's what's actually going on. I said at the start that this is a reality check on where we stand with God because like Stephanie, like the Pharisees that Jesus originally spoke this parable to, every single one of us in this building can be self-deceived about this. We can think we're okay with God because we've been 
baptised and confirmed because we've come to church for ages, because our parents are Christian, because we try to be more moral than others. Jesus says any or all of those things can be true of us, and yet we can still remain unrepentant. He says the only safe reality check is to ask, am I repentant? Am I saying to Christ, you be king, and is there real evidence in my life that I am living that? And the particular evidence that Jesus points to here is our use of money. That's one litmus test. And he says those who have him as king realize that their money is his money. And that one thing he wants them to do with it is to help the Lazaruses of this world. Now, who those people are for you and me locally and globally and how we best help them, that is a completely whole new story for me not to start now but Jesus says one piece of evidence that we have accepted him as king is that we have at least begun to realize that he wants us to help those people and we have begun to live that out in our giving of time and energy and money whereas if we are basically like the rich man he sketches in the parable self-indulgent self-absorbed unaware of other people's needs, unmoved by them, then all the evidence is that Jesus is not yet king of our money and therefore, in all probability, not yet king of us at all. God knows your heart, said Jesus to the people he originally told this parable to. And through it this morning, he's asking us, to you. Let's pray. <coughs> Father God, we confess that by nature we are all self-centered, self-absorbed, and that we struggle and fail profoundly to see the needs of others and to act justly. <coughs> And we thank you that although it is so painful to hear, this part of your word has reminded us that you are God and that your kingdom will come and that you will ultimately bring about the justice which to you is second nature. And that that is good news even though there is this horrible possibility of ending up on the wrong side of it. So for those of us who need to turn to you for the first time, we pray that you would give us the will to do it and bring us through all the obstacles to doing so. And for those of us who have done so, who at least profess to be Christian, we pray in the light of this passage, as we did earlier, that you would forgive us the good we have not done. And give us the time and the will to prove the genuineness of our repentance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>